0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, we've got updates on stories about an alleged racially motivated crime in Chatham, as well as emergency housing for off-cape families in East Ham will david is here and he's got our exclusive womr weekend weather outlook and ira wood has a matter of opinion about a tear for jimmy buffett <music>
1: An alleged racially motivated incident in Chatham in July that led to the indictment last week of a teen for attempted murder has elicited strong response from local officials. A 14-year-old male was indicted by a Barnstable County grand jury August 31st on charges of attempted murder and assault with a dangerous weapon. Because of his age, local papers are not identifying the teen by name. The indictment stems from a July 19th incident at Goose Pond, in which the teen and another 13-year-old allegedly threw stones at and repeatedly attempted to drown a 15-year-old. Both the 14- and 13-year-old are white, while the victim is black. The 14-year-old is being charged as a youthful offender, meaning his case will be processed and treated as that of an adult. The 13-year-old is being charged as a juvenile in connection with the incident. The victim told police that he went into the water with a life jacket on after the two other teens began throwing stones at him. The victim told police that the 14-year-old then followed him into the water and pulled him underwater four to five times, even after he told the teen that he couldn't swim. As this was happening, the victim reported that the other teen laughed and called him George Floyd, the black man who was killed by Minneapolis police in May 2020. A bystander on the beach started to swim out to the teens and called for the 14-year-old to stop, which he did, according to the report. The victim was helped back to shore, after which time he left the area. Judge Sylvia Gomez ordered the 14-year-old to be held without bail in Barnstable Juvenile Court. Prosecutors argued that the youth was a danger by referencing a separate altercation with another teen just hours before the alleged incident at Goose Pond. The teen is due to appear back in court on September 13th. In an email to parents, Monomoy School Superintendent Scott Carpenter said the alleged incident goes against the district's goal of celebrating diversity and fostering understanding among all students, staff and families. Carpenter said that the two alleged aggressors are not enrolled at Monomoy. The indicted teen has since moved to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where the attorney representing the 14-year-old said he recently began attending school. The Chatham Select Board issued its own statement condemning the alleged incident. The board offered support to the victim's family and said it will continue to work with police and Monomoy school officials to deter events such as this from taking place, Monomoy officials have been aware of the incident since it first came to the attention of Chatham Police in late July. Superintendent Carpenter said police, school administrators, and staff have been working to support students returning to school this week. Last week, he met with the high school's Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging Advisory Council to talk to them about the incident, and he met with the entire high school staff last Thursday. Staff was asked to be ready to refer students who wanted to talk about the incident to counselors and to watch for students who may be troubled about it but do not speak up. As downtown Wellfleet's only year-round restaurant faces eviction, a post on social media announced that the Fox & Crow Cafe was closing its doors for the month of September. The post was written by the attorney for owner Trudy Vermerin, Bruce Beerenc. Beeren said the Post came in response to rumors that Vermarin was planning to close permanently. Vermarin is currently in a court battle with her landlords, John O'Toole and Grant Hester, who own the property on Main Street, where she leases a building for the cafe. The pair, who run the Copper Swan Inn and Lounge on the same property, are pursuing an eviction process in Orleans District Court. O'Toole and Hester served Vermarin with an eviction notice in July, saying she owed them a month's rent, plus money for rooms she had leased for employee housing. Behrens told the owners that Vermarin was withholding payment for the employee housing due to substandard living conditions there, and was waiting for instructions on where to submit the month's rent, which was to cover the final month of a newly signed five-year lease. Since the two rent payments, totaling $14,000, continued to be withheld, the landlords began the formal eviction process in the Orleans court. Vermeeran responded with her own complaint, seeking $200,000 in damages from O'Toole and Hester for failing to meet their contractual obligations, which she says has resulted in loss of investment, employees, and business. After closing for a few days, the Fox and Crow reopened for the month of August with limited hours and a scaled back menu. Meanwhile, accusations and denials have gone back and forth. In their response to Vermarin's suit, O'Toole and Hester alleged that the Fox and Crow owner brought in a front-end loader and dug into a hill in the rear of the parking lot to create more spaces, which has caused the hill to erode. Vermerin denied the accusation in her own court filing. O'Toole and Hester also claimed Vermarin attempted to delay their opening of a new lounge on the property by stashing rotting fish in the rafters of the lounge to create a stench and attract flies. Vermerin denied this in her response to the court. In announcing the temporary closure, Behrens wrote that Vermerin's lawsuit against O'Toole and Hester will proceed whatever decision is made regarding the future of the fox and crow. Wellfleet Oysterfest is just over a month away, and you may need to move quickly if you want to be a part of the party. As the festival returns to Main Street after last year's event at Baker's Field, tickets are selling quickly. Oyster Fest takes place from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Saturday and Sunday, October 14th and 15th in downtown Wellfleet. Wellfleet Fest was launched in 2000 as a way of educating people about shellfish. Over the decades, the festival has grown monumentally, with thousands descending upon Wellfleet each year. For festival co-founder Lisa Brown, the goal is to make it more manageable. Brown said organizers saw the event get a little too big and very unwieldy. The commitment now is trying to limit it. Although the fest brings millions of dollars into the area for local businesses, there's a warning flag when a bunch of townspeople leave town because the party gets out of hand. As a result, daily capacity for the festival has been capped at 11,000 people per day. In order to make the festival more accessible to locals, Sunday's admission fee is waived for residents. Two tickets are available per household. On Saturday, the famous shuck will take place. Contestants will be competing to win cash prizes and the chance to compete in Galway, Ireland in the international shuck-off, hosted by the Guinness Book of World Records. Registration closes on October 1st. For the first time at Fest, a shucking tent will be set up on the town hall lawn to teach festival-goers how to shuck. In addition to oyster slurping and shucking, over 50 arts and crafts vendors will be at the festival. Local bands will provide live entertainment, and kids can enjoy activities in the kids' area. Free parking will be available on all of Wellfleet's ocean beaches, and free shuttles will be taking people to the festival. For tickets and information, you can visit wellfleetspat.org. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn.
0: At its annual tax classification hearing on August 28th, Provincetown's select board voted unanimously to increase the town's residential tax exemption to the legal maximum of 35%. The residential exemption had previously been set at 25% of the assessed value of the average residential property in town. That average is currently just over $1 million. The exemption allows money to be deducted from the assessed value of a residential property in calculating property taxes if that property was the primary domicile of its owners or of a year-round tenant. Provincetown adopted the residential tax exemption in 2015, initially setting the amount at 20% of the average home's value the select board increased the exemption to 25% in 2017, and the town received permission from the state legislature in 2019 to extend the exemption to year-round rental properties. Citing a desire to encourage year-round rentals, the select board voted last week to increase the amount of the exemption to the maximum allowed by state law, 35% of the average assessed residential value. For the current fiscal year, the deduction is worth just over $2,000 at the current tax rate. Because the exemption is written to be revenue neutral, an amount equivalent to the revenue not collected because of exemptions must be spread across the rest of the taxed residential real estate. So the overall tax rate goes up. The formula means that owners of higher-valued property get less benefit from the exemption even if they claim it because the remaining assessed value of their home is taxed at the new higher rate. According to Provincetown Assessor Scott Faley, there are 3,471 residential properties in Provincetown that do not claim the residential tax exemption and 827 that do. One-third of the town's single-family homes are expected to take the resident tax exemption this year. Only 15% of the town's residential condominiums are expected to qualify, either because they are not their owner's primary homes or because they're not rented out year-round. Although there was some discussion among select board members whether to raise the rate to 30 or 35%, the vote to raise the exemption to 35% was unanimous. For nine days at the end of August, after Governor Mora Healy declared a state of emergency because of a shortage of shelters for unhoused families, six families were placed by the state in an East Ham motel. The families arrived at the Ocean Park Inn on August 21st and left on August 29th, after the State Executive Office of Housing and Livable Communities realized that the Outer Cape posed too many challenges for the families. The families were part of the State Emergency Shelter Assistance Program, which ensures shelter for eligible families under the state's right-to-shelter law. The steady influx of asylum seekers entering Massachusetts and the end of COVID-era food and housing security programs has pushed existing emergency shelters beyond capacity, and the state has been forced to adopt stopgap measures. In a letter to U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas, Healy called on the federal government to expedite work authorizations for migrants and to increase funding for providing shelter to families. The number of individuals in shelters across Massachusetts has increased by 80 percent from last year. In the past few months, the state has housed more than 1,800 families in hotels and motels. State Senator Julian Sear told the Provincetown Independent that the situation in East Ham was the first example of this coming to the Outer Cape. According to Seer, four of the families placed at the Ocean Park Inn were Massachusetts residents. Most were from the Boston area, but some were from as far away as Springfield. Two families were originally from Haiti. Together, the group comprised 35 people. There was little time for the town and the Outer Capes food and social services organizations to prepare to help, for the first 24 hours the families were in town, nobody was informed that they were here. East Ham Town Administrator Jackie Beebe said she received a call from the governor's office on the day after the families arrived. The location of the inn on Route 6, a four-lane highway with no sidewalks, posed serious problems for the families. According to Katie Wibby of the Lower Cape Outreach Council, which helped provide essential services to the families, only one family had a vehicle and the rest soon learned that public transportation out here is quite limited the town along with the lower cape outreach council and several other local organizations and businesses rallied to help feed the families and provide other basic services the following monday august 28th the town received word that the state had located rooms closer to the family's various home bases and they left Eastham the next day. While Eastham is the farthest down Cape, the state has found temporary lodging for families. It's not the only town on Cape Cod that has received a call from Governor Healy's office. The state was planning to place up to 100 families at the Yarmouth Resort before Healy placed a temporary hold on the motel to examine code-related issues. The motel, which rents out a portion of its units to year-round tenants, is under notice for alleged zoning violations and a lack of certificates of occupancy. It's unclear whether the state is planning to place more families on the Outer Cape. According to sources contacted by The Independent, state officials soon realized after placing the six families in Eastham, that the Outer Cape's infrastructure presents problems of access to those who are housing insecure. But East Ham Director of Health and Environment Hillary Greenberg-Lemos told the Board of Health during its August 31st meeting that if more people come, the town is ready to assist in whatever capacity they need. Wellfleet is having a special town meeting this fall, and after complaints that last spring's town meeting was inaccessible to working people and young families, this session will be held on a Monday night and child care will be provided for ages 3 and up. The quorum requirement has also been lowered to 150 voters. Town meeting in Wellfleet is set for September 18th at 6 p.m. in the gymnasium of the Wellfleet Elementary School. The following week, on September 27th, voters will head to the ballot box to elect a new member of the select board to finish out Kathleen Bacon's term. Bacon announced her resignation in July. According to town clerk Jennifer Conjol, the only person to take out nomination papers for the seat was Timothy Sayer, who lost to Bacon last year when she ran as a write-in. Along with 10 bylaw amendments, voters will be asked to approve $2.7 million in Prop 2.5 overrides to fund a town planner position and a wastewater treatment facility at the Lawrence Hill Housing Development. The wastewater facility will serve the new housing as well as the Wellfleet Elementary School, the police station, and the fire station. Surrounding properties will also be hooked up to the system as part of the town's targeted watershed management plan to cut nitrogen loading in Wellfleet's embayments. An override would fund a town planner's job at Town Hall. Wellfleet is currently one of the only Cape Cod communities without one. The town planner would support the building commissioner and Zoning Board of Appeals in enforcing zoning regulations, as well as assisting in developing bylaws. Planning is currently assigned to the assistant town administrator, a position that is overburdened, according to the warrant. The assistant town administrator job is currently being filled on an interim basis by David Colton after Rebecca Ruffley resigned at the end of June. Select board member Ryan Curley told the Maurice's Campground Committee in July that the town planner would help perform the duties that would have been assigned to the housing coordinator, a new position defeated at the annual town election by 17 votes. Both the town planner position and the Lawrence Hill wastewater treatment funding will require a two-thirds majority at town meeting and a majority vote at the special town election on September 27th. The town of Dennis has started a child care subsidy program to help residents attend a state-licensed children's program. Applications are now open. Dennis Select Board Chair Christopher Lampton said young families often struggle with the cost of daycare, and his experiences as a parent inspired him and State Rep Chris Flanagan to initiate a subsidy program. The funding for the program was approved in May at the Dennis Annual Town Meeting and will fund the program for birth through five-year-old children of Dennis residents. A subsidy in the form of direct payment to providers for one child per household up to a maximum of $2,400 will be provided for eligible families who meet the income threshold of 150% average median income. Applications and complete instructions are now available at the town website. Required documents should be completed and submitted by September 28th for the program period through August of next year. Although the program is starting off with a limit of one child per family, the Board hopes to expand the program in the coming years. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn.
2: This is meteorologist Will David with your weekly weather watch and temperature trend for the Outer Cape. Our stretch of stellar summer weather will come to an end as a trough of low pressure and a front over the eastern Great Lakes slowly heads this way. Ahead of the front, unseasonably warm, humid weather will continue. It'll take most of the weekend for that front to clear the coast as a strong Bermuda high fights back and blocks its eastward progress. This unsettled pattern will continue into next week as several disturbances slide eastward across the Outer Cape, producing periods of showers and thunderstorms. The timing of these disturbances will determine which days of the week have the best chances of rain, but it's best to prepare for at least a chance of showers each day. In the longer term, this weather pattern will play a big part in the eventual steering and path of Cat 4 Hurricane Lee. More on that shortly. Elsewhere across the nation, the trough and attending cold front is bringing welcomed relief from the stifling and record-shattering heat that gripped much of the central US earlier in the week. After seeing triple-digit heat in the Twin Cities, temperatures have fallen dramatically with lows in the 40s and highs in the 60s. This cooler, drier air will move farther south and east through tomorrow and include the Ohio and Tennessee Valleys as well as the Mid-Atlantic. But as the front moves into that stifling air mass, showers and severe thunderstorms are likely from the Northeast to the Mid-South. Unfortunately, the unrelenting dome of heat will sit over the Southern Plains and continue to affect most of Oklahoma, Texas, and Louisiana with triple digit heat and dangerous heat indices. And finally, Hurricane Lee is now a cat 4 storm. As I've said countless times, hurricanes, no matter how intense, do not necessarily steer themselves. They are steered by an ever-evolving upper-level pattern. If the pattern is straightforward, the hurricane's future is easier to predict. Conversely, if the pattern is chaotic and convoluted, the hurricane's path will be erratic and harder to predict. The two main players next week are high pressure over the Atlantic and the trough of low pressure over the Great Lakes. And with these two players come three possibilities. Number one, the trough deflects Lee away from the East Coast. Number two, the trough bypasses the hurricane and high pressure over the Atlantic steers the hurricane back toward the East Coast making landfall. And number three. The trough doesn't deflect the hurricane out to sea, but works in tandem with that high over the Atlantic, creating a channel or pathway for the storm to get very close to the coast. And yet another fly in the ointment is newly formed Margot. If the two storms get close enough to each other, they could affect each other's motion, also known as the Fujiwara effect. This afternoon, all possibilities are on the table. The hurricane will gradually weaken as it moves into cooler waters but it's also forecast to grow in size and remain a formidable storm so please continue to monitor all future updates over the next five to seven days now my exclusive womr weekend weather forecast for the outer cape this afternoon partly sunny very warm and humid highs around 85 Tonight, mostly cloudy and muggy with areas of fog, close around 72. Saturday, patchy, dense morning fog, then partly to mostly cloudy and continued humid with an isolated shower or thunderstorm, highs around 82. Sunday, mostly cloudy and humid with a better chance of showers and thunderstorms, highs 75 to 80. As always, stay safe and informed by keeping an eye to the sky and an ear to the radio, Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. I'm Weather Will.
3: This past year, we lost a lot of great musicians. Tina Turner, Sinead O'Connor, Jeff Beck, Tony Bennett, David Crosby and Burt Bacharach to name a few. I can't say I mourned them if by definition we mean the experience of genuine grief, but I can say that as a result of the tributes by our DJs, I enjoyed a rejuvenated appreciation of their work. Proud Mary, I left my heart in San Francisco, do you know the way to San Jose? Long time gone. These songs are as embedded in my consciousness as are some of my personal memories, and in some ways, just as vivid. In at least one case, that of Sinead O'Connor, the outpouring of heartbreak that accompanied her passing led me to explore what I had overlooked, her voice, her passion, her activism, her tragic illness. It turns out, a lot. I am not a musical person. I marvel at DJs who assemble set lists with a coherent theme. And the closest I come to mastering an instrument that plays music is changing stations on a radio dial, which is why I felt surprised all week by having sad, recurring thoughts of Jimmy Buffett. Although I did briefly meet him once while dining with my agent in the Russian tea room, and he did offer me some sage advice. Order the borscht. I don't remember much besides the fact that he was dressed in an all-white linen suit. Nor am I a parrot head. If I want to surround myself with bald guys sporting ponytails and Hawaiian shirts, I can go to any bar on Cape Cod. Thank you. But I related to Jimmy Buffett. He was only five foot seven, after all, the perfect height for a rock star, and a lot of his songs moved me, sometimes making me laugh, other times wistful. They almost always made me think. Come Monday was the first. My wife and I were traveling a lot back then, doing readings all over the country rarely in the same place, and living on the road made me so lonesome that I would sometimes weep when I heard the words, I spent four lonely days in a brown L.A. haze, and I just want you back by my side. And what booze-drinking slacker pothead can't relate to Margaritaville Literally losing an entire season doing nothing but pining away for a relationship and feeling sorry for yourself. Story of my younger life, if you must know. And Cheeseburger in Paradise, I tell you honestly that like many of us, I've eaten in fancy restaurants all over the world, and my wife is an accomplished cook. But if I'm ever seriously asked what I want for my last meal, well, I like mine with lettuce and tomatoes, Heinz 57, and French fried potatoes. Another thing I admire was his business acumen. As a liberal Democrat who campaigned against Ron DeSantis, and Donald Trump in Florida, he was my kind of billionaire. Apparently, only about 5% of his money came from his music, however. The rest, from licensing the names of his songs to restaurants and casinos, as well as beer, boats, salsa, tortillas, hummus dip, tequila, and even blenders. He had to fight For the rights to the names of his own songs, incidentally, soon after they were released, they were trademarked by other entities. Jimmy Buffett wrote novels and kids' books and a Broadway musical as well. He stayed married to the same woman for 46 years. The Washington Post even dubs him the official male Baby Boomer-style influencer, and says that he invented the dad look. Faded t-shirt, shorts to the knee, baseball cap, sunglasses on a croaky, and flip-flops. Before Jimmy Buffett, middle-aged men wore crotch-hugging gym shorts and tube socks to the knee. For that alone, we owe him a debt. Mostly, I love Jimmy Buffett for his attitude, his humor, and the inclusive irony in his smile that always reminded us, with all of our running and all of our cunning, if we couldn't laugh, we would all go insane. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion.
0: that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn, Will David, and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz. It's Stirred Not Shaken with Hank and Andy on listener-supported community radio, WOMR.